Hello and welcome to episode 205 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, today we're delighted to have back on Rob Dinnerman, friend of the podcast, and uh, he tends to drop by whenever he has a new book uh, out there or whenever we want to talk college squash, double squash, and uh, the case may be this time that uh, a history of Harvard squash, the Mike Way era, is now been released and it's available out there for anyone interested in reading, and I do highly recommend it. I've read uh, parts of the book and it's, it's extremely well written and very interesting, obviously, uh, we all know the story behind Mike Way, uh, uh, coach to uh, first ever North American softball world number one world champion uh, Jonathan Power, along with Graham Riding and several others. Canadian legend uh, on the coaching scene, uh, made his way to Canada from the UK, coached in uh, the Toronto area for many, many years, and then uh, took on a uh, head coaching role for Jonathan Power and then found his way uh, to Harvard in 2010 and that is what this book is all about and Rob lays it out very very well as he always does and uh, today we go into we take a deep dive into many aspects of the book what brought uh, Mike to to Harvard in 2010 uh, the 23rd the disappointing season of 2013 where they almost won their first uh, men's Potter Cup title after not having won since 1998 and then uh, winning it in 2014 and the years subsequent to that and so much uh, in between and of course in recent years Harvard squash has made a name for itself obviously uh, having a world number one world uh, open champion twice over Ali Farag uh, coming out of Harvard and uh, of course Amanda Sobe, Sabrina Sobe uh, amongst others currently Victor Quint, uh and there are many many more uh, along those lines uh, coming out of the Harvard uh, squash program and Mike Way is the one who's behind that he's done a great job recruiting and Rob uh, takes us through all of that the last time Rob was on the pod I believe we talked about his uh, release uh, the, his book release back then which was the the sheriff of squash uh, a book about Sharif Khan uh, and that's a fantastic read uh, you should check out his website to see uh, all of his books I believe there might be near 10 or 12 10 or 12 uh, books on squash mostly uh, in and around the, the topic of uh, you know, college squash in America, uh, hardball squash, uh, Sharif Khan, obviously the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, hardball player of all time. Uh, Rob came to my attention actually way back in the days of uh, Rob Beck. Um, Ron Beck's uh, squash website called Squash Talk and uh, I used to uh, visit that site uh, quite regularly and there were there were always these really interesting well-written uh, reports on the uh, pro squash double scene uh, back in that in the day and Rob, and, uh, Rob uh, Dinnerman was the man behind that and that's how uh, sort of I fell in love with his writing and uh, back then and sort of uh, started following uh, the hardball scene as a result of it and uh, since then uh, I've been lucky to have Rob on the podcast several times and this one certainly uh, you won't be disappointed with this Rob takes again we take a deep dive into his new book A History of, Squ- of Harvard Squash The Mike Way Era and I know you're going to enjoy it episode 205 of the In Squash podcast uh, Rob uh, it's great to have you back on the podcast it seems like um uh, every time you have a new book coming out, we we make a, uh, an effort to have uh, to have you on the podcast. And you have a new book out, uh, "History of Harvard Squash: 
the Mike Way era, which is, uh, I'm sure uh, everyone will enjoy this when most people uh, these days know Mike Way uh, for, for his Harvard years, uh, probably the younger people out there. But uh, and also, of course, uh, his Jonathan Power years and uh, and whatnot. But um, anyways, um, just wondering, uh, how's everything with you? How how's uh, everything going and the, the launch of the book? I'm, I'm feeling great. And uh, we're very happy with this book. Mike Way's a remarkable coach. He's the only uh, coach. Uh, I believe in North America to coach two players to the number one world ranking. He coached Jonathan Power, uh, as you said, uh, several decades ago to that spot. And uh, Ali Farag, who played for Mike at Harvard, uh, has been the number one player on the tour and is the World Open champion. He just got, I think, bumped uh, down a little bit by Paul Cole. But for months, he was the number one player. He's been in that role multiple times in the last couple of years, and he is the reigning world champion, having won that event in July uh, in Chicago this past summer. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, he, he's done a lot. And, uh, you know, I'm Canadian, so I've known uh, Mike for even the years uh, before uh, his Jonathan Power, his time with Jonathan, and uh, he was a great coach uh, even back then. So it's great to see uh, him doing so well in that regard. But just to uh, getting to the book, uh, obviously uh, Harvard's had some some great years under Mike Way. Uh, it didn't, you know, didn't obviously didn't start out uh, all all with all the glory. But uh, just to to get started, uh, what was the genesis for you uh, behind the book? Well, I have I wrote a book on the history of Harvard squash, covering from nineteen twenty two through 2010, 88 years of the program. And that book was published in the fall of 2015. Uh, and by that time, Mike had been at Harvard for four or five years and had both some national team and individual champions. And I thought at the time we should cover his several years there in part of, in that book as well. But the Harvard administration note said, no, he hasn't been there that long. Just cover through Satinder Bajwa's era and it ended in 2010. So I did that. Uh, but now that Mike has been there for well over a decade and has had tremendous success, both in terms of teams and individuals uh, all these years, uh, the Harvard people felt that I definitely agreed that we should do a sequel book uh, covering, covering Coach Way's time. And so this book covers from 2010 when he uh, became the coach initially uh, after tremendous success as a, as a coach of juniors in Toronto, more than 125 national championships uh, from there uh, until the present. So well, it actually covers through the 2021 year. Uh, that 2021 season, of course, was canceled due to COVID. Uh, and the book really was released over this fall. So it, it clearly didn't cover this past season in which Harvard again, won both the men's and women's team championship. Uh, but it does cover the 10 years of competitive seasons from 2010 through 2020, uh, during which time, incidentally, uh, the Harvard women won eight of those 10 years and reached the finals of the national championship, the other two years losing 5-4. And the men uh, won a three uh, Potter Cup men's national championships and uh, got to the finals three, uh, three or four other times. He has actually had, uh, including the, uh, it was actually 23, it was actually 11 team championships and 12 individual championships before this season. Harvard won both the men's and women's again this year. So uh, we're now at 13 and 12, 
and who knows what's going to happen this weekend at the individual championships in Philadelphia. Right. So the well, point that, is, should be, that should be exciting, shouldn't it? Right. And by the way, both Victor Cruen uh, and Hannah Motaz and Marina Stefanoni are three of the eight players in the semis of the men's and women's this weekend. So there, there could easily be more Harvard championships coming out of that. Well, that's exciting stuff. Uh, now, before we get into the, the nitty gritty, uh, let's uh, just take a look at the, those years, those early years. Obviously, we just mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Mike is synonymous with uh, for most people uh, prior to his Harvard years with uh, due to his uh, years with Jonathan Power, those historic years bringing, you know, winning the uh, the first North American to win a softball uh, world championship and be world number one. Um, just uh, could you give us a little of a, like a bit of a backstory in terms of how Mike uh, wound up at Harvard in 2010 and particularly in terms of the years that followed uh Bill Doyle's uh, departure in 1999. There were, I guess, ten years there where uh, where where someone else was in there uh, running the show, and then Mike came in in 2010. Well, Satinder Bajwa, Doyle had seven tremendous seasons between 1992 and 99, and when he left in 99 after that season, uh, Satinder Bajwa, uh, who had been the manager of John Chakad, uh for many years when John Chu was the number one player, he was the coach of the men's and women's teams at Harvard for 11 years, 99, 2000 through 2000, 2010. He had actually quite a bit of success uh, in his last year. Uh, both, in, uh, both individual uh, champions were, were for Harvard players, uh, Laura Gemmel and uh, Colin West. Uh, Colin West, of course, being a Canadian player, uh, as, as was Laura. Uh, and the women won the How Cup for the first time in nine years. But the men's team had had a couple of uh, rocky years. They had not been really a contending team since 2007. And uh, the men's program is of a lot of interest to the Harvard alums. They've, they've had a great tradition going back to Harry Cowles and Jack Barnaby uh, and Doyle, of course, and Dave Fish. I mean, they've had great, great success with the men's program. They've won more national team championships by far than any other school. And between that and the fact that Satinder, who's really a, a delightful fellow, is a little bit controversial as well. Some of the techniques he used and, and just his persona in the squash world, the Harvard people decided that they wanted to make a change. Uh, and... Um, and I guess Mike maybe felt that um, he'd really sort of accomplished what he wanted to and what he could with the Canadian Junior Program. Uh, but in any event, he he applied for the position and, and given his uh, extraordinary resume, uh, I think it was pretty clear that Harvard was going to was going to bring him over. And Mike, did, you know, this was before his first match at Harvard, the, the, mat, the first dual meet of his first year at Harvard. He had never even seen a college dual meet, much less coached in one. Mm. So this was very definitely, he'd of course been at many, many junior tournaments and tournaments of all sort of all at all levels, but he had not been at all exposed to uh, college squash uh, in, in Canada or in the U.S. And so this wasn't a brand new situation for him. And the men's team didn't start particularly well. Don't forget the program had floundered for a couple of years and it took, it's always going to take a new coach a few years to recruit players and just replace the program. But that happened very quickly. I mean, in the beginning of his second year, Ali Farag came over as a sophomore from Egypt. 
who had won, he'd won the Junior British Open. He'd been to the finals of the uh, Junior World Open. And he was, you know, a superstar right away. And his second year, both Ali came as a sophomore and Amanda Sobey, who had been the leading U.S. junior and won the World Junior Championship. I think she's the first American to do that. Mm. Um, she, she arrived at the freshman. So very, very quickly, he had two players, uh, uh, you know, a man player and a woman player to, you know, to lead the programs. And between that, he also had a number of very of junior players from Toronto, especially uh, girl players, women players, who then came and played for him. Uh, uh, Laura Gamble was already there, whom Mike had coached at Canada. Her younger sister, Michelle, came shortly thereafter. Uh, the Meta sisters, um, Sophie and Elisa, came a few years after that. Uh, Gilas McGowan. These are all players whom Coach Way had coached when they were juniors in Toronto. And they were they were thrilled to come to Harvard and be reunited with him. So both programs were in a position where they were ready to flourish very very soon after he arrived. Right on. Uh, I mean, you hear of uh, you know in other sports where uh, where got you know maybe coaches it takes them a couple of years to uh, to sort of acclimatize maybe to you know to the Harvard way or or to uh, you know just coaching in, in the college scene in general. So what do you think uh, did, was it a seamless transition? You sort of alluded to that there in what you just said, was it a seamless transition for him or was it, were there some uh, growing pains there in the, the first couple of years? There was a learning curve and he even told the athletic director after his first year that maybe they had hired the wrong person. He was that, he was that, cause that was actually that first year was the only year of the 10 competitive seasons he coached prior to the beginning of this last season in which neither the men or nor the women won the national team championship. Mm -hmm. The men, uh, as I said, they were there. They had a bunch, they had a bunch of good freshmen, but they had needed some time to develop the women who had won the national championship the year before in 2010, such as last year, lost in the final to Yale 5-4. Um, it was a very close match. It could have gone either way. Yale wound up winning. But that was the only year which Harvard did not win at either the men's or the women's championship. Every one of the years since then, they've done that. And each of the last three seasons, 2018-19, 2019-20, and this 21-22, they've won both. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, but he, I, I, he just... I had to get, there was a little bit of a learning curve, let's put it that way. Uh, I don't think the tradition, the transition was, uh, it may not have been seamless, but it didn't, it didn't take long. Mike's a, he's a very, very quick learner, quick study. Uh, he sort of learned just the, the ebb and flow of the, of the academic year in college, you know, when there are breaks, when there, when the schedule heats up, et cetera. So if it took, if there was a learning curve, it was a quick one. Yeah, I guess uh, I'll, uh, with all the experience he's had, all that experience uh, coaching juniors uh, throughout the years, I mean, that might have helped him in, in a bit of a way in terms of, uh, you know, how to handle uh, the players that he was coaching. But also, uh, I guess maybe the learning curve, and I've spoken to Mike a couple of times on this uh, podcast, and he talked about uh, how important uh, the recruitment process is. And I think that was something that uh, I, I would I would imagine it may have taken him a little bit of time to adjust to. But with the name Mike Way, I'm assuming that uh, 
there'd be quite a few uh, juniors who would want to uh, to play for Harvard. You know, you've got the academics and then you've got uh, one of the, the greatest coaches in the history of the game uh, coaching there. Right. No, that was, that was his name drew a lot of attention from the junior group. That's for sure. And uh, as I said, very, very, you know, Amanda came his second year. Uh, Ali came his second year. Ali actually was not planning on, uh, on he was in college in Cairo uh, his freshman year and was not really planning on going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that spring, though, was the Egyptian Revolution. And that changed both his thoughts and his parents' thoughts. And he did arrive at Harvard as a, as a, as a, new, as a new sophomore uh, the, in the spring of 2011. Hmm. Interesting. Now, uh, in chapter two uh, of the book, which you which is called the perfect capstone, um, you you lay out very well uh, uh, how Harvard, uh, with, at that time led by Ali uh, Farag, managed to win its first uh, Potter Cup since uh, 1998. So uh, just in a, in a thumbnail, if you don't mind, it's a great chapter, uh, uh, uh uh, Rob, but uh, how did that season play out, uh, particularly? And I think, uh, and you you talk about this a bit in, in the chapter, given uh, the disappointment of 2013 for the men. Well, that I think 2013 was uh, had a lot to do with the, with what happened in 2014. Uh, in 2013, was the, that was the first year that the Harvard uh, men had a share of the Ivy League title. In, a, in, a, in well over a half dozen years, uh, they uh, they lost they lost a very close match to Princeton, which was the defending uh, not only the, the defending Ivy League champion and the defending national champion from the year before. The 2012 Princeton team was the team that broke Trinity College's 13-year run of national championships. You know, led by their coach Paul Asayante, and Princeton was able to beat them 5-4 in the final at Princeton in 2012. They had a very good team in 2013. They barely beat Harvard, uh, but they ended up losing a, a close match at the end of the season to Cornell, and that enabled Harvard to end up tying Princeton for the Ivy League championship. Those two teams played in the semis of the Potter Cup, the national team championship, uh, a few weeks later. Uh, Harvard was ahead 4-3 and had Ali Farag on the court to give them their fifth win. Ali, to that point, had never lost a college match. He had won the individual championship the year before and got undefeated. He lost to Todd Harity, who's now, of course, on the Pro Tour as well, yeah. and who played the match of his life. And so that made it four all. And uh, can I? Sorry, that, Rob. Can I just stop you there? I, I mean, uh, just I mean, we'll get back to that. But Todd, uh, this this seems to happen quite a bit. You've got in the college uh, game, doesn't it? I mean, you've got the highly, uh, you know, heralded players like, like Ali or even a Victor Quinn, uh, these guys you would expect, uh, you know, would be winning all their matches uh, easily, but it doesn't play out that way uh, a lot of the time, especially on these big stage uh, matches in front of uh, a raucous uh, crowd if you're playing away, does it? Absolutely. One of Ali's first matches when he first arrived as a sophomore was against Todd uh, at Princeton in the dual meet, and Todd was ahead of him 2-1. Ali managed to win that match, but uh, Mike Wade described it later as sort of being welcome to college squash for Ali. He was facing raucous <laughs> fans. And, but more than that, and this was really something that Ali had to adjust to, he was no, he was fi- once until he was in the college setting, 
he was only playing for himself. Mm. At, at Harvard, he was playing not only for himself, but for a team. And he definitely felt the pressure of the, of the fact that a, a whole eight other guys were counting on him to win his match. That was something he'd never been exposed to before uh, college. And that was something that took some adjusting. And uh, he was, he told me later that the, the 50 minutes or so that passed between when he lost to Todd and when um, his teammate, Gary Power, who was down two games to love against Dylan Ward at number seven, at number four, rather, rallied to win that match to put Harvard in the Potter Cup final, their first final since 2005. He said that was the longest 15 minutes of his life. He was just trembling in the gallery uh, because <laughs> yeah. he did. I mean, basically, Gary Power bailed him out yeah. by making that comeback. And when Gary, after Gary had managed to win that fifth game, all the Harvard players rushed the court and mobbed Gary. Ali was unable to because he was physically still shaking too much from watching that match to, to some of the energy to go on the court. That's how that's how much affected he was with being in that setting. Anyway, the next day at, against Trinity in the final, Harvard, to several people's surprise, won two of the first three matches. And uh, in, in each case, five games and very, very close. And, and at that point, um, Brandon McLaughlin uh, was, was ahead in his match uh, against Juan Vargas. Uh, one love and a, good, a big lead in the second game. And if you think about the mathematics of that, if he wins that match, they've got a definite win at number one in Ali waiting in the wings. That gives them four points. It would have meant that they would have only needed one win in the last four or five matches to, to clinch that national championship. Gary uh, McLaughlin was not able to hold his lead and wound up losing. And the Trinity player, that was kind of the match that turned the momentum of that whole dual meet. Juan Vargas's rally turned the whole momentum of that match, and Trini wound up winning 6-3. In fact, there was a, there's a very interesting movie. Um, uh, a, a, uh, a Trinity senior named Mark De Benedetto, as a senior project, followed the Trinity team that whole season and uh, produced about an hour-long uh, documentary called All In, which is, which is on YouTube and which is wonderfully done. And a lot of it focused on that final round duel meet, because this, of course, was Trinity getting the national championship back that they had surrendered to Princeton the year before. Uh, anyway, Harvard, that was obviously an incredibly painful experience for Harvard to be in a position really to win that championship and have it all sort of slip away when a, when a match or two suddenly turned late in the going. But that losing that fostered a tremendous determination on the Harvard squad to win the championship the next year, when, by the way, five of their starting nine were going to be seniors, mm. including Power and including Ali Farag, who incidentally lost his individual semi uh, to uh, Amr Khalifa, who would have been his rival all the way through their junior time in Egypt. Uh, so the Harvard team was, A, had, had the best team that year, and B, which was even more motivated because of the disappointment of not having one in 2013 when they had a chance to. And that Harvard team just swept the board. I mean, they, they, were, they were wonderful all year and nobody was able to, to, to beat them. And they actually beat Trinity 9 nothing mm. in the final of the Potter Cup in 2014. Right on. So I guess it, uh, it begs the question then, uh, just in terms of Mike Way, uh, 
how did how, what was Mike's reaction to the disappointment of 2013 and and uh, his message uh, to the team in the aftermath of uh, of that loss? His message to the team was, "We're we're not quite there yet, but we're very close. We're going to take the next step next year, all of us." And uh, and I'm going to be on you the whole time and make sure that happens. And and it did. That happened to be the one year, other than 2011, in which the Harvard women did not win the Howe Cup, the, the women's national championship. They lost five four to uh, Trinity in the final. That's a whole other story. Right. But uh, and 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 by the way, they have swept out. They've won out ever since. They're seven consecutive national championships shatters the previous record uh and uh and they've won 98 consecutive dual meets so they they have not looked back since that disappointment in 2014 mm -hmm. uh but in any event mike oh, not it didn't even need mike the whole team knew that they were going to be the best team in 2014 Trinity was lost a number of important seniors uh harvard got some very good freshmen harvard had the best team that year and they they were determined to prove it all season after this point of 2013 and that's exactly what they did mm. and uh yeah i just want to ask you uh rob about uh, paul asciante and you brought his name up and uh obvious for good reason um he had won 14 of the, the previous 15 uh, national titles, Potter Cups for the men. And um, you know, sort of what was it about, about uh, Paul? I know your book's about uh, Mike Way, but what was it about, uh, about Paul and his ability and, and his teams over the years that were just so uh, he was, why, how was he able to dominate uh, over that span of time? Well, the interesting thing is that, Trinity kept winning. In, in some of those cases, they did not dominate. And I think that's a tribute to uh, to Paul's coaching that, you know, just in that, like the 2013 Potter Cup, they, they could have lost that. And uh, in 2009, it came down to the last match of the final round against Princeton. Uh, and Mauricio Sanchez was ahead 5-love in the fifth game, nine-point scoring against Basil Chaudhry in the match that was going to decide the national championship at mm -hmm. Jadwin Gymnasium, Princeton's home court. Chaudhry wound up winning nine straight points and Trinity won that way. And there were years that Trinity won more handily, but they were at the brink a number of times. And Paul, first of all, is a very, very good recruiter. Uh, and secondly, is very good at getting his team to play its best when it's most needed. And a part of that is he gets players from all different countries around the world uh, because of his recruiting skills. And he is almost unique in getting those players to think of themselves as one big family, even if they come from countries, by the way, that, that, are, that aren't particularly friendly with each other. He's mm. great at fostering a, uh, an all-in, That's which, by the way, is the, reason, is the name of that documentary that Mark DiBenedetto uh, produced. He gets them to think of themselves as one cohesive, interdependent unit. And players on, his players when they're in trouble in a match, they're very aware of the fact that on the next court, there's one of their teammates who's playing his guts out and that he doesn't even only owe it to himself. He owes it to his teammates who are doing that on the other courts to not quit and to stay in that match and to find a way to get through it. Mm. He's a Absolutely. tremendous coach that way. Mm. Interesting. Uh, uh, and I was just going to say, just getting back back to, to Micah, he's one of the... <clears throat> I mean, I often make, I've had a few of the coaches, uh, the college squash uh, coaches on and on, and I've occasionally made the 
incorrect assumption that they coach both men's and women's. I think that's uh, Mike Mike's case where where he does coach both. Uh, Absolutely, that's more the Absolutely. exception to the the exception to the rule, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, it's probably about, it, it used to be the case that I mean when I was in college and and even for quite a while after that there was a men's coach and there was a women's coach it, it was not the case that people coached both teams uh, and Jack Barnaby only coached the men during his forty years at Harvard uh, Dave Fish only coached the men the first time they had uh, Harvard had a, someone who coached the both both the men and the women was Steve Pilch who had been the women's coach for a few years. And I think they didn't really have a good successor to Dave Fish when he left squash coaching uh, after the 88-89 season. And Pilch sort of filled that role for a few years before he left to become head of school, by the way, at a very good private school near near Philadelphia, which is pretty unusual for a head coach of a squash team to then become the headmaster at at a school. He said, by the way, that nothing could have prepared him for that later position more than coaching the Harvard men and women did the the years that he did that, which is sort of interesting also. Mm. But anyway, Harvard ever since has had, you know, Doyle coached both the men and women, Satinder coached both the men and women, and so does Mike Way. Uh, They have assistant coaches who also coach both teams. Uh, Dave Talbot was the men's coach and Mark Talbot was the women's coach for a while in the late 90s and early 2000s. When Mark left to go to Stanford, Dave became the coach of both teams and his successor, Lynn Leong, is the coach of both teams as well. So, but Princeton has, you know, has had a separate men's coach and women's coach throughout their history. And that's true now also. So it, it does vary a bit from uh, Penn has a men's coach and a women's coach. So again, it varies. Right, right. And uh, would you say that that Mike's had? I mean, obviously Harvard. The the men have had success, uh, more success recently. But he's had a bit more success with the women since he began his ten tenure, hasn't he? Well, certainly, as I say, the women have won nine national team championships, and his men's teams have won have won four now. So. There is that obvious difference. Um, he probably inherited a better women's program than, than the men's program he inherited. So that's part of it. More of the junior players from Toronto who played for him when they were juniors and then went to Harvard are, are women than are men. So that's part of it as well. Uh, and, and the truth is there are more good competitive uh really elite level men's teams in college squash as a whole than is true of women's squash. So it's, it's a, it's a harder challenge. Right. Okay. Now, um, how do you see uh, the next few years playing out? Obviously uh, uh, the Potter cup's gone uh, to Harvard again. So uh, is that three in a row now? Uh, That's right. Yep. Yeah. Three in a row. Do you, do you see this sort of a, uh, do you think Harvard's going to become another uh, trinity in that regard, winning winning a few it's, more? It's, the, it, the, the paradigm is different. I mean, they're, Paul's trinity teams have been wonderful, but he did not have as many really good uh, uh, contending elite teams to defeat, uh, especially in the early years, as is the case right now. I mean, there's... The, the college question has become just incredibly high level. Uh, look at the fact that Yusuf Ibrahim, he might not win the individuals this weekend. He just got to the finals of the platinum tournament in Chicago, a pro event. Yeah. 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 yeah so, I mean, that, um, that's, that's what I was saying earlier. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, Victor, Victor lost to Andrew Douglas a few years ago. And I mean, Andrew does okay. He almost I mean, lost, so to, Douglas. Far, he he almost lost to Douglas two weeks ago. I mean, he, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Penn played Harvard. That's the other thing in terms of what you're saying about a dynasty. Penn beat Harvard this past season in the dual meet and was very, very close to beating them when they played in the finals of the Potter Cup uh, two weeks ago. Uh, they lost 5-4. Andrew Douglas had match ball in both his fourth and fifth games against Victor Cruen and was and Cruen wound up winning. Uh, there were that I mean, if they the truth is. Penn has more good players this year than Harvard did, uh, which uh, is shown by the fact they won handily at numbers eight and nine. And when they won the that, dual uh, meet, sorry, Rob, is that Gilly? Uh, Gilly is Gilly, Gilly, Lane, Gilly Lane is the He's, is the men's coach at yeah. Penn, and Jack Wyatt is the women's coach at Penn. Uh, mm-hmm. The women's team has been to a number of How Cup finals, but always lost to Harvard. They they're not as strong this year, but the men's team is very strong. Mm-hmm. I think if they played Harvard ten times, they'd win at least seven. And they did win the dual meet. And this time they were playing a team they'd beaten in the dual meet in their building in really what shaped up as their year. They won, Penn won the Ivy, Ivy League this year, not Harvard. And it's just a tremendous effort and a tribute to the players and to Coach Way's ability to get his team to play this absolute best squash at the most important time that Harvard was barely able to beat Penn 5-4. Yeah, I so think you described like it uh, on da- on your on the Daily Squash Report uh, write up that the article that you wrote there. You described it as the the best Potter Cup final in history, didn't you? I, I I I'm not aware of a Potter Cup final that was as high quality in terms of the matches and that was excite as exciting as uh, as that Potter Cup final. It, I mean, the Penn crowd was very very. Uh, raucous anticipated that they were fi- finally going to win uh, what would have been their first postseason national team championship since 1974. Wow. Mm. 48 years ago. Amazing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and their first wire to wire undefeated season, I think, ever. So the Penn people were, were absolutely starving to, to win that match. And the Harvard players somehow were able to repulse them by the barest possible margin. Wow. Well, the college game just sounds, sounds so intriguing. And then you, you've you got, I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, how about uh, teams like uh, like uh, Cornell and Drexel, uh, Rochester with, with big name, uh, former player coaches, Thierry Linku, I think he's at Tufts, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, uh, how are those guys uh, making out in their uh, – uh, with with their teams, are they are they making progress and making inroads? Well, uh, it, you know, Rochester had its best teams uh, four or five years ago. They got to the finals of the Potter Cup in 2016. In fact, um, they have not. They were not as strong this past year. Nor was St. Lawrence, which which also got to the finals of the Potter Cup a, a couple of years back as well. Uh, uh, the um, Drexel, but the, the Drexel men have always the Drexel men came very close. Came the closest of anybody to beating Harvard in 2019 when Harvard had its, its first great season when Victor Cruel was a freshman and so was Marwan Tarek. Uh, uh, but but what, what surprised everybody um, is that the Drexel women, who have been really relatively unheralded and certainly were not a contending team until recently, they got to the finals of the How Cup this past weekend uh, before losing to Harvard. Uh, they beat they beat Princeton, which had been the finalist the last time the How Cup was held in 2020, uh, and um, and they had a great five four win over Trinity in the semis. Uh, they were no they were seated I think six. They were supposed to lose in the first round of the How Cup, which is only the top eight teams. 
they they got to the final. No Drexel team has come anywhere close to anything like that uh, in the past. So the women had, had a great season. And incidentally, um, the the Drexel a player who won the deciding match on court, Alina Bushma, is Ukrainian. And there was sort of some extra support oh, for wow. her in light of what's going on in the world right now. Wow. Yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, fingers crossed uh, things uh, improve over there. Uh, but um, yeah, I was just, uh, I was going to say, uh, the, it gets, maybe the proof's in the pudding. They've, they've done, they've invested quite a bit of money in squash at Drexel. Uh, so the facility, their facility, their facility for sure. And the Drexel men have, have, uh, have, are certainly a contending team, but right now they're sort of in the second tier. Right, right. Okay. Well, and they've got John, and they've got John White as their coach, by the Johnny way. Johnny White, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's the coach of the women's team and the men's team. White is. Uh, yeah, if, if they play anything like him, then it's a must. Uh, you know, you don't want to miss any of those matches. That's for sure. That's for sure. And, I'm and surprised he didn't. Uh, he would have been. Uh, he would have been amazing as a doubles player. I'm sure he's played a couple event of events, but uh, you know, just his uh, the way he he uh, he goes about the game, the way he hits the ball, and his you know just the power he generates with a softball. I would imagine, uh, uh, much like uh, Cameron Pilly, uh, he he'd have some success on uh, on a doubles court. <laughs> I actually faced White's firepower firsthand a couple of times, and he definitely does some great things with the, with the doubles ball as well. <laughs> yeah. And and P- and Pilly, by the way, uh, just last night, uh, himself and Ryan Kaskelly, his fellow Australian, uh, got to the, won their quarterfinal match in the in a very very big pro doubles event that's going on in Brooklyn uh, right now. So okay. they're in the se- this is the first time in the semis of a big event. Pilly's getting better and better. He's going to be a force on the on the tour and for no other reason than how hard he hits the ball. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hardest hitter. They 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 said he. What did he have the 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 hardest hit ball ever recorded on uh, on the softball court? Anyways. Yeah, I, I take some of those with a grain of salt, but he definitely yeah. can uh, hit hard. And he's playing the right wall, which means he's hitting forehands almost all the time, which is his you know stronger side. Right. Well, uh, Rob, I really appreciate you uh, laying out the book like that. Um, is there anything else that we missed? I know I, I'd like to give uh, the listeners uh, sort of a, you know, a website or where, where they can pick up the book. Um, so is there anything else that we missed there? And uh, how can we uh, how can we get uh, this book? Well, first of all, just in terms of the book itself, uh, I think it's, I've written almost a dozen books now. I think there's the best presented book of any of them. The printer did an extraordinary job. It's leather bound. There's embossed crossing rackets on the on the cover. It's actually already won an award uh, from the Printing Industry of New England, P-I-N-E, uh, for the just the presentation, the the uh, the cover and the binding. Uh, uh, it was one of six books that was cited by that association. Uh, wow. I also think that. Of all the books I've written, it's the one that contains some of the most compelling stories. There are just remarkable, um, just the human drama in some of the instances. Sabrina Sobey is the younger sister of Amanda, who yeah. right now is the world number three player. She's a fantastic and player. Fantastic player. Huh? She's a great player. I like watching right, her. Play. Right, right. Yeah. And she is only the second women player, by the way, to win the college individuals all four years that she was in college. Uh, so and, you know, since then, she's been she never lost a match in college. And of course, she was a star even before she got there. Um, although she also improved greatly under Coach Way. 
anyway, Sabrina um, was in this very unenviable position of following Amanda and sort of she's and trying to follow her footsteps. And Still uh, she gave a speech. <laughs> she gave a she gave a speech at the senior banquet when she graduated in 2019. And by the way, the 2018-19 season is the only season ever in which a college team, Division One, has gone wire to wire without losing a single match, not a single dual meet. They won every match 9-0, uh, which is really pretty incredible. Yeah, that's, that's incredible, yeah. And anyway, at her senior banquet, and normally the senior speeches are bantering and irreverent, et cetera. She really opened her heart and with her voice trembling, just told what said, what kind of shared, what a challenge it's been for her uh, playing under the circumstances that she, she has played under her whole, her, her whole career. Uh, there, there were some amazing situations that cropped up, including some really tricky, you know, tragic ones. Uh, as one example, uh, before uh, the How Cup final in 2013, the grandfather of one of Harvard's players suffered a fatal heart attack in the men's room right before her match. Mm. And Coach Way and the player's father had that discussion. Should we tell her? Should we have her even play? Should we not tell her until after her match is over? There was a whole, and Mike, in his characteristically, completely honorable way, told the, the father, whatever you think is best for this player is what we'll do. She ended up playing the match said later that she she knew she something didn't quite feel right the whole time she was playing, but she won, the team won, and it was only after they got their trophies that she was given the word of what had happened to her grandfather. Uh, so just there's there was one uh, one player played a match at the at the tournament of champions in Grand Central Station, New York. And after losing that match, took an overnight flight to join his teammates in Colombia, where there was a team trip. And the, the, just the drama of what happened with him. He, he arrived, not, there was, nobody spoke English there. Uh, he ended up being gu given guidance as to how to meet his teammates by a homeless guy selling soccer jerseys uh, in sort of a town square. Just some remarkable personal stories. Plus, Mike Way talks about his coaching philosophy. He's, he's one of those guys who's invited to forums in the graduate schools at Harvard because, and he's talk, he's in the same panel discussion with professors because he's kind of a professor of squash himself and the university has recognized that. He's, he's sort of given access and given invitations to sort of scholarly forums in a way that's never been done with any college coach before. Wow. So all that's, in the, all that's in this book. And uh, again, it, uh, it's certainly a book that I feel that I'm very happy I had the honor of being able to write. And and in, to my mind, almost the best thing of all was getting to really become, you know, form a bond with Coach Way, who's just a, a remarkable person on every front. And it sort of right in the book kind of gave me a, a sanctioned excuse to call him whenever I wanted to, which uh, which was sort of, an, sort of an added bonus. Uh, in any event, at this point, um, the uh, the printers, Millennium Printing Company in uh, just outside Boston. But uh, but just in terms of over the air, et cetera, the best way to do this is to uh, is to contact the Harvard, uh, their, their assistant coaches, Hamid Ahmed. And uh, his it's a relatively easy email address. It's, it's just his name, Hamid Ahmed, H-A-M-E-E-D-A-H-M-E-D at fas.harvard.edu. -E okay. uh, at this point, the best way to go about getting that book, I think, is to contact him. 
Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just include that in the uh, in the uh, profile information of this podcast, and people can uh, can email him if they if they're interested in in picking up the book, which they should. Sounds like a great uh, great read, and and what I've read so far, it's uh, it's really good, Rob. So, congrats uh, on a, on another uh, a, a good book. Anything else in the works? Uh, anything oh yeah, in, in the hopper. I'm well there? along. I'm well along in a manuscript. Uh, this is going to be a racket sports biography of Ralph and Sam Howe, the Howe brothers, who uh, were tremendous squash players. Uh, first of all, at Yale in the late 50s and early 60s, and then throughout the decade of the 60s going to the early 70s. They are the only two people, not the only two brothers, the only two people to be in both the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame and the International Court Tennis Hall of Fame. And they both okay. were excellent tennis players as well. So their achievements in the sort of multitude of sports, uh, including partnering up as doubles players in squash uh, and winning several national championships there, that really defined U.S. squash or North American amateur squash during the 60s and 70s. And uh, it's really, it's, it's a very different, a whole different uh, mode from writing a history of squash at a certain school. Uh, but it's... Um, but it's been a very enjoyable project. The manuscript's almost completed and uh, the book should be out in about five or six months, I think. All right. Well, I look forward to having you back on then. And I look forward to being back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a couple of things, if you don't mind, uh, Robert, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, go beyond uh, the books uh, uh, that you write. Uh, firstly, um, the Windy City uh, Open in Chicago just uh, concluded, as you know, and uh, obviously some great squash there. But one thing uh, that came out of that that I think a lot of the squash community is quite uh, happy with is uh, – Billie Jean King's uh, endorsement of the game at, at the uh, at the finals. I don't know if you saw the video footage of that, but uh, if you did, I'm just wondering uh, if you have any thoughts on that. I didn't see the video footage, but I was told that she uh, talked about an event like that being great for, quote, our sport, meaning squash is she, – she viewed squash and that was our sport. And that's yeah, – yeah, uh, yeah. Well, she, she really, uh, yeah, she came off as being, you know, a squash fan first and foremost, and she knew quite a bit about a little bit. I wouldn't say quite a little bit about the history of the game, and right. and uh, seemed enamored with uh, with both the men's and, and the women's squash that she'd uh, witnessed, and obviously she'd played a little bit uh, of squash back in the day. Uh, back right. and when not, she was not only that. Not only that, uh, there was a, a, a club uh, near Lincoln Center called the Lincoln Squash Club in, uh, in, in the west side of Manhattan, uh, which had a great run for a whole bunch of years. They had eight courts and there was a lot of action the whole time. Uh, Ned Edwards, who was, a, who was a great, great squash player, was the manager and uh, involved with that club in a major way. Anyway, I played there a lot during that time. And Billie Jean King used to use that club as the place where she did her, her bicycling on the stationary bicycle. And those bicycles looked out onto the courts and she was always intently following what was going on in the squash court. So she's, and this was in the eighties. So she's been hmm. exposed to squash for 40 years, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, I mean, she had lots of great things to say about the women uh, that were playing. I think uh, she just watched uh, Noran Gohar and Hanya El-Hamimi play and she's, the athleticism and the racket skills and the she she described the intensity uh, of Gorhar's game and just how 
you know, the movement and, and everything. So she, she was really, a, she was well-versed in, in, in a lot of uh, the game, it seemed. So a great and endorsement. And also clearly well, clearly well attuned to everything. I mean, Gohar is the most visibly intense player of anybody on the women's tour and Absolutely. maybe anybody, and maybe anybody on either tour. I mean, you yeah. can, yeah. you can, it's in her face. It's in the severity of which she strokes the ball, even when she's hitting by herself. So no wonder Billie Jean King immediately, you know, latched onto that and was aware of it. Yeah. Oh, she's one of my favorite players to watch. Athletic. She she gets around the court well. She just hammers the ball. Um, I remember seeing, I've told this story before, here in, in Dubai, they had the, the Super Series final a couple of years in a row. And the first time, uh, I got to see her play. This was right after she had won the World Open uh, and when she was quite young. And uh, she'd been going through a really, really tough time, and she lost all all her matches in this uh, Super Series. But you could just tell, like, she was going to be – she, she'd returned to number one or close to it again. Just the, the way that she hit the ball and the way she moved around the court was – you know, it seemed a bit better than everybody else that was even, that was in the event. By the way, speaking of going through a tough time, uh, when Ali Farag came to Chicago this past summer for the World Open, he'd been going through a tough time with this game. He lost in, the, in all every match of his round ser- round robin series uh, over somewhere in, in Asia, I believe, right before Chicago. And uh, his wife was very very pregnant, about to give birth. And his game was struggling. He sent out an SOS to Coach Way, basically saying, "Come out here, I need you." And uh, it's one—it's sort of the last story in the in the in the Harvard Way book that I that I just wrote. In fact, this all happened after we'd finished uh, the manuscript been closed up. But we, it was such a dramatic situation that we had to add it uh, as a postscript. Uh, mm-hmm. Way came out there, straightened out Ali's game, coached him to the to you know Ali then won the championship. Uh, beating El Sherbaki in the final. Uh, that was 11 days in Sally after uh, his wife, Nora, gave birth to their daughter, Farida. So in the space of less than two weeks, Ali Farag became a father for the first time and won a World Open for the second time. And this was an absolute case of Coach, not in terms of the World Open, this was a case of Coach Way coming to the rescue. And in my view, it was a classic case of a superstar player and a superstar coach uh, combining their talents to get a result that neither could have achieved without the other. Yeah, e- excellent story. I uh, look forward to reading that uh, in the book as well, Rob. Now, uh, before you go, I just I, I haven't seen as much uh, footage on the pro double scene. Maybe it's because I'm not looking in the right places, or maybe it's just not as uh, it's keeping more of a lower profile, but you would know uh, more than anyone else how things are going on, on the pro double scene. There's obviously a big event going on this weekend. Uh, right. How, how are first, things going there? And that this big event this weekend is the first doubles event since November. There were three events in the fall, at which point, because of the Omicron situation, uh, the tour, which, by the way, completely was canceled last season, 2021, the tour shut down. All the January events were either canceled or postponed, pushed forward. We should have a fairly active spring, I think. But there, there actually has been uh, slightly over three months between, uh, the, or actually close to four months, between the, the last event, which was in Sleepy Hollow uh, in upstate uh, near Westchester uh, in mid-November, and this uh, 
uh, event in, in Brooklyn at Heights Casino in Brooklyn Heights uh, in early March now. So you haven't been missing. You, it's not like there's been things happening that you haven't missed. It's just been an, uh, an unfortunately imposed uh, hiatus or gap in the, in the tournaments. Again, if everything goes well, many of those events were pushed into the spring and we should have an active March, April and May. So uh, it, just to, you know, to speak to the double scene, uh, you know, in general, is the, I get, are they able to, is the scene able to survive and it's self-sufficient uh, uh, pretty much, or uh, does this type of lull uh, in the scene, does it, does it affect uh, what's, you know, the future of double squash at all? Do you think? These lulls are not, these lulls are not helpful, uh, nor is yeah. the fact that a doubles gallery is such that people are right on top of each other which is also true, incidentally, on court. You know, unlike tennis, where there's a net in between you, in squash, you're breathing each other's air. Yeah. And, you know, when you've got a COVID uh, pandemic going, that's uh, that's very, very unhel unhelpful. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, this, uh, this first event uh, only had 16 teams the size of the main draw. There was no qualifying. Uh, years back, there were as many as 28 teams with 12 teams straight in and 16 teams trying for the four spots for the qualifying. As I say, uh, there have been uh, the best player on the tour, uh, Manik Mathur, had to drop out this week because he was diagnosed, po he was uh, tested positive for COVID. Mm. Uh, so th this tour, th this has been tremendously affected by uh, by the pandemic, which, as I say, completely canceled last season, cut short the year the season before, and has made uh, a huge negative imprint on the on the number of sites that have occurred so far this season. So, what what keeps the game going? I mean, is it? Uh, I mean, I, I'm not there, so I, I wouldn't know. But do a lot is double squash uh, very popular these days? Uh, double squash ball. It's tremendously popular, and that's what's kept the game going. The, the, the people who play it and the people who watch it are not going to leave, not for another sport, not for uh, not to be watching singles, not for any other reason. There's a unique excitement in hardball doubles, uh, just the uh, how quick the pace is, uh, how um, how varied the number of shots is. It's almost like a kaleidoscope, shaking a kaleidoscope sometimes, doing the different ways that the ball is angling sharply off the different walls. And uh, nobody who's played it or who's, you know, seriously watched it uh, is going to abandon the sport that they're so fond of. Yeah, I mean, I played a long, long time ago in Vancouver and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. But I mean, I was playing uh, all with singles back then. But I would imagine that, you know, now that, uh, you know, I'm well beyond my uh, my prime, uh, that doubles would be a great option. Uh, it's uh, uh, first of all, everybody who played hardball who either wasn't able to or wasn't willing to make the switch to softball and who wanted to keep playing squ squash made the switch instead to doubles, uh, which you know was played with a hardball and is is as close as they could or were able to come to still playing hardball singles. And there's a lot of people who fall into that category. Uh, and and just the um, just what an exciting feeling it is to play the sport and how fulfilling a feeling it is to really just unleash on that hardball and having it fly <laughs> to the front wall and back. Yeah, yeah. When they've been so frustrated, sometimes swinging their hardest at a softball and it doesn't respond the way they want to, right. uh, you know, is keeping people drawn to the sport. Right. Uh, I, I, I did want to ask you, I've never been hit uh, with a hardball. Obviously, you have. What's that like? 
it hurts a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and you're wearing it for a while. There's usually yeah. a pretty good welt, a bullet size. It's like uh, kind of a bullet in the middle and different colors spreading out from there. But uh, you definitely don't want to get hit by, by a Cameron Pilly for sure God, or, no. or, by, or by anyone else if you can avoid it. No. Well, Rob, uh, really, really, uh, it's always uh, great to have you uh, to speak to you uh, on the podcast here. Uh, your, your wealth of knowledge, the book. A History of Harvard Squash During the Mike Way Coaching Era, 2010 to 2021. 2010 to 2021. Everyone out there listening, go out there and uh, pick up the book. Uh, leave the uh, the email address of the, the contact person at Harvard. And I what, know what other thing enjoy to, it. Share, Rob. What are the... One other thing, too, and that's that um, there are passages from the book, if anyone wants to read them to just sort of get a sense of whether they want the book or not. There are passages. Uh, there's a there's a site, a robdinnerman.com site, uh, and Dinnerman's with one N, R-O-B-D-I-N-E-R-M-A-N dot C-O-M, that has all my books arrayed. And on the right-hand column under excerpts, there are passages from each of them. Uh, including, of course, the Mike Way book, so which is right now at the top, the top listed of those books. So, anyone, there's three passages from there, and anyone who reads them will have a good sampling of of sort of what the whole book is like. Brilliant, Rob. Uh, look forward to having you on again in about five months when, when the next book comes out. And uh, be well. All the best with your with your squash too. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, and uh, look forward to being back when whenever you're ready. Take care, sir. All the be best. Well. Bye-bye. Well, that was fantastic. And once again, many thanks to Rob Dinnerman. And if you're looking to pick up a history of Harvard squash, the Mike Way Arab, visit uh, Rob Dinnerman's website. Or also you can check out the email that you can send to pick up a copy uh, uh, via the Harvard uh, contact. And Rob's going to uh, send that to me. And I'll be sharing that with you. Uh, You'll see it in the profile for this episode so again thanks to robin i really look forward to having him back on again whether that's to talk about his new book or to talk about uh, the double scene or the the college squash scene as it comes to an end uh for this season maybe we can do a wrap up uh, uh or a look in a look at the uh the upcoming uh season for next uh next year but uh, yeah again rob knows what he's talking about and uh, fantastic to have him on now now, just to wrap things up, uh, just want to talk a little bit about the Windy City Open and uh, what a great event that was. We saw Norhan Gohar play Norhan Gohar, uh, just uh, a type of squash, just uh, incredible to watch her play. She's, uh, as I've said uh, a few times before, uh, probably one of my favorite players to watch on the men's and women's uh, side. Uh, just uh, moves around the, the court so athletically. Of course, the intensity uh, through which she plays is uh, unparalleled in the game. And uh, she went out there and took care of business without dropping a game the entire event. Uh, she had a, It was a great match in the final against Hanya uh, Helhamami, but uh, uh, she was no match for Noran. And on the men's side, uh, Paul Cole, uh, you know, I think I tweeted that, uh, you know, when it seems as though when someone uh, gets that number one spot in the ranking and then they play that next event, that's always a very difficult uh, task because people are, are gunning for you and you've got a little bit more pressure on you. Well, Paul, 
couldn't have sent a more emphatic message by winning the, the Windy City Open and in the fashion that he did coming from two love down against a very, very talented, uh, exciting uh, player like Yusuf Ibrahim. And Yusuf himself played uh, amazing throughout the whole week, beating the Sherbaggy brothers, a tough ask uh, uh, for anyone in the, at the top of the game, but he did it. And uh, but couldn't overcome uh, Superman there in the final. What a great match that was, uh, coming back from two love down to win it and to, uh, you know, to solidify himself as the, the player uh, to beat right now. I mean, he's number one in the world. He wins the, uh, the Windy City Open, the first event uh, after, being, uh, after taking over that number one spot. So there's no question about it. He's the man to beat. And you know, he's got his hands full because it's not just the regular guys that, uh, you know, the Sherbaggies the, and the Frags. There are several uh, others there that are, that are nipping at his heels. And we've got uh, Mustafa Saul about to make his return to the tour. You've got uh, Diego Elias, who had a short-lived appearance in this event, but I'm sure he's going to come back with a bit between his teeth. Uh, you've you've got to Joel Macon, obviously, Ferris Tasuki, hopefully he's healthy, and uh, so many others, uh, so many other young uh, young players coming up. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a challenge for Paul, but uh, yeah, he's the man to beat right now, and he proved it this week. Congratulations uh, to him, and also again to Noran Gohar, who played unbelievable squash this week without dropping a game to to win uh the women's side of the windy city open and coming on uh, the podcast with any luck uh, will be the mc of the uh, windy city open william uh, cunningham we're hoping to have him on this week and he's going to give us uh, hopefully some interesting uh, anecdotes there from his experience uh, this year and in past years at the windy city open so i'm really looking forward to that and uh, we've got a few more uh, hopefully in the hopper some big names coming up from the squash scene and also just some good stuff on uh, ho- hopefully we're going to have the string doctor back on I have to get in touch with him uh, I haven't been uh, talking to John Sharp in a while and that'll be some there'll be some insightful stuff there we uh, we want to keep our racket strung right and John uh, the last time he came on uh, gave us some uh, some great insight there so we'll try to have him back on soon I'll reach out to him and uh, get that done as well anyways i hope all of you are enjoying your squash playing well staying healthy staying fit and finally i just want to express my thoughts and prayers to the ukrainian people the uh, ukrainian squash community uh just thoughts and prayers go out to you and hopefully the debacle that's uh, taking place over there soon comes to an end i really hope uh, that that happens everyone uh take care and uh, all the best to all of you we'll be talking to you soon we've got a couple of episodes coming up soon hopefully sooner uh, rather than later the it's been a few weeks since my last episode apologies for that but uh, we're going to try to keep them uh, keep them going at a more regular pace but uh, all the best everybody take care and thanks for listening goodbye now